Stay inspired on the go with Springboard Zone, an inspirational podcast from internationally acclaimed executive coaches, authors and ministers, Albert and Comfort Okran. You will be inspired and challenged with strategies to consistently reach for new heights. And now, today's message. Tonight, we continue our series with another very special guest, all the way from University of Manchester or Manchester Business School, one of our key speakers at the International Conference on Information, Infopreneurship 2009, Dr. P.K. Richardson. More than ever before, the globalized nature of our world today makes it imperative for business organizations, entrepreneurs, and corporate leaders to look beyond their geographical localities and explore opportunities for doing business in and with other countries and continents. We are privileged tonight to host a man who has worked on different continents, as a lecturer and also as an international consultant, Dr. Richardson is a visiting senior fellow of the Manchester Business School and has previously been responsible for the Institute's MBA Managerial Economics and Globalization courses. Today, he joins us to discuss strategies for going global. If you plan to export your company or talent abroad one day or you are interested in doing business at the multinational level, this is your chance. It's about strategies for crossover into the international business arena with Dr. P.K. Richardson. P.K. Richardson is a visiting senior fellow of the Manchester Business School. The early part of his career took him to the, through the GBC and the BBC, but today he lectures MBA programs around the world and lectures in Ghana, Nigeria, South Africa, Dubai, USA, Jamaica, China, and Hong Kong. I wonder how he manages to combine so many countries. Dr. Richardson is the author of several publications. He prefers to be called PK. PK, welcome to Springboard. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's always good to see you. How's the family? Everybody's doing fine, thank you. Love them in Manchester, but they're, they're okay. They're big now. They can look after themselves. I don't think they miss me. The kids are all big. <laughs> <laughs> this morning, this morning on another program, a good friend of mine was promoting this program and said, because you mentioned Manchester alone, he 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 likes the program. He likes the fact that you're coming on the show because Manchester is always Manchester. All right, right. You've worked in several countries on different continents. From your own observations, what are the similarities and differences between work in the different countries you've been to? I think the first similarity is that we're all human. <laughs> Everywhere you go, people are the same people, uh, human beings. Uh, when it comes to work and uh, uh, impact and so on, I think the difference comes basically from attitude. There are places where you actually see that people go to work um, desiring to give a hard day's work for a hard day's pay. What I find here most of the time is that people think, you know, uh, when you employ them, it's a favor to employ them. They show up, and at the end of the day, they go and they think they've earned their pay. So attitude is the basic thing. Certain places, people are really building, they're making a contribution. Which countries impressed you most in terms of work output, individual China. work output? China is very impressive. I mean, China has done in 30 years what it took the West 300 years to do. Basically, when Mao died, China was still a communist country, everybody poor and so on. You have Deng Xiaoping coming in 1978. And within 30 years, China has changed. Now, China is the richest country in the world, apart from the United States. No doubt. What, what, may actually overtake the U.S. in the next 20 years. Let me, let, 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 let's, let's, let's explore that a little. What, okay. what do you think the secret is? I think it's basically hard work. You see, when Deng Xiaoping took over, 
He knew that he had 1.25 billion people, mostly poor, not a lot of capital, and in order to develop, you need two things. One, capital, money, machinery, and so on, and two, human beings. And they had plenty of human beings. But you see, not enough capital, not the factories there, to work with the human beings. So this guy said, when it comes to the politics, we shall still remain communist, the Communist Party, Central Committee, whatever. But when it comes to the economics, we are going capitalist. And he came around and said, hey, you guys in the West, you've got the capital. I haven't got the capital, but I've got people dedicated, ready, motivated to work, skilled. Bring the capital, and the capital flowed in, and China has changed. Between 1990 and 2000, on average, China attracted $40 billion a year. Now, if you have $40 billion a year coming to your country for 10 years, you will never be the same again. <laughs> Even if you don't want to, you will never be the same. That's powerful. That is China. And when you go to China to teach these Chinese, I mean, the, the, the seriousness, the dedication, you know, they said to me, look, we have beaten the world in manufacturing, in making things. What we need now is to understand your management techniques. And once we know that, we will beat you. Hand down. So they're very keen to learn. They came to learn the language. They came to learn the management. And you give them assignment. They, they're working very, very hard. These guys are all full-time workers. But they are so keen to learn. It's simply amazing. And when you go to the factories, they do it. If you look at the definition of leadership, very, very simple. It's one of those words we all use and talk about, but we're not very sure of the meaning. Leadership is simply the process by which an individual called the leader is able to influence a group of people called the followers to achieve some common stated objectives. So if the leadership is right, if the guy at the top say, hey guys, this is our country and we must make a difference and we must cut poverty and this is the way we want to do it and so on, set a vision, get everybody on board. It's amazing what people can achieve when they have one mind. The voice of Professor P.K. Richardson from the Manchester Business School talking about international business and global impact. And we've set about rolling with the story of China. We want to switch over to Accra, Ghana, and particularly to Kokomlemli. Why, why is there the need for businesses to go global? Right, I think I will uh, answer that by uh, uh, um, taking a few quotations. You started by a quotation, which is always good. <laughs> There's somebody who's always said something that fits, if you like, uh, the bill very carefully. That's yeah. right. Um, Andy Grove, chairman of Intel, he said, you have no choice but to operate in the world shaped by globalization and information revolution. In a sense, there are two options, adapt or die. You must have some company-specific advantages, mm -hmm. some strengths which you want to exploit elsewhere. And second, you've got to determine where to go. And that depends on locational advantages, host country advantages. So, wh where can I exploit these capabilities? And then you decide. Because you cannot go everywhere. Mm -hmm. You've got to determine where those firm-specific advantages can be exploited. We call them locational advantages. And then you go for it. So, following up on your locational advantages, yeah. where can one go? It depends on the business you're in. Mm-hmm. You know, I know one company that used to supply parts, all right, uh, parts for uh, Rover. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of motor car manufacturers don't manufacture everything. You know, they buy tires from Firestone, they buy the electronics from uh, uh, Japan, the stereo may be labeled Philips, you know, or it may be labeled even Toyota, but Philips or some other electronics company may have I've done, done for, them. for them. Right. So, this company was supplying parts for Rover in the United Kingdom, some of their car parts. Mm -hmm. And Rover decided to move to China. All right? So this company said, if 
This rubber company is going to China. Then we are going to set up also in China next door to them so that we can continue to supply. Yeah. You see, so you actually go there because of customers. Or you go overseas because there are certain assets that you can get. For example, a lot of companies have gone to India to tap the talent in IT. Yeah. You know, rather than stay in America and pay people $50 an hour to write software for you, you set up in India, they've got the same sort of brains, and you can get it for $10, So you go there for that. You also go international because perhaps um, your market is saturated at home mm -hmm. and you want to grow, and therefore there are other markets not saturated. Perhaps you do washing machines, and in the United Kingdom, everybody's got one. Yeah. You've got a factory. Yeah. Nobody is buying because they've got one. These things last for five, six years. Yeah. And there are other areas where washing machines are beginning to take off. So you go there. So there are many reasons why you want to go international. Maybe another point that I can add is going international actually helps you to spread your risk. Okay. If you put all your eggs in one basket, one market, the market country goes, goes into a recession, you're in trouble. So as a way of spreading the risk of business, you locate in other countries. Because it is very, very unlikely that all countries will go in a recession at the same time. Yeah. In fact, when some countries are in recession, some are doing well. We in the United Kingdom have got a very interesting phenomenon. Nobody understands why our economy tends to be more in harmony with North America than with our continental neighbors. Every time North America is booming, UK is booming, Europe is down. When Europe is booming, UK is boom, uh, going down with North America. But you don't have all countries going bust at the same time. Okay. So by spreading your business around, what you're doing actually spreading the risk of business. Right. Comfort? Well, um, PK, you, when yeah. we were talking about location, where to go, you talked yeah. about issues about um, um, talent, um, how to, cost the need, I mean, if customers are there, that you could move there, and then also if there are new markets, and also um, how to spread in risk. Yeah. However, I mean, you just can't go there. I'm sure you need to prepare before you go there. What kind of preparation do you need to go when you're, when you want to, when you're thinking of going global? Well, the, the, the first thing is you've got to get some uh, company-specific capabilities that you can exploit. In other words, you've got to be strong. And um, a way uh, to test this is how good am I in the domestic market? Okay. Because you've got to be very, very good to be able to exploit that. And that is why in Japan, for example, the government encourages Japanese companies to be uh, serious rivals domestically. They, they encourage them to compete against each other, which forces them to become extremely competitive. And then they can use that overseas to win. So you've got to be good locally. Then you know that who dares wins. You've got to be, uh, have guts also, because international business is not easy. Uh, competing domestically is hard enough. Going uh, international is even more difficult. And you've got to understand what it takes, that you're going into a place where the culture is different. So you've got mm -hmm. to understand the culture. Mm -hmm. Whichever country you decide to go in will be different from your own. And culture is very, very important. You know, culture is about the, the collective programming of the mind of the people, the way they think, what you know, is value to them, what is important to them, and so on. There are things which may not be important to you in your country, but may be very, very important. For example, McDonald's uh, has succeeded everywhere it's been. And India is a big market with a middle market that's about 300 million people. These are uh, a middle class that is capable of taking families out to eat and so on. So that's they know huge. we can actually, yes, that's, that's, that's the middle class. And it's growing. 
every year. You know, so McDonald's knows that they can actually have a market bigger than the American market. But you see, India, you cannot kill cows there. Nope. All right? Cows are secret. Yeah. And all uh, hamburgers made around the world have beef. <laughs> you have to be sensitive to the area. If they don't like beef, it's sensitive, fine, yum. Yeah. And you've got a market. You know, so uh, culture is very, very important. Now, you know about Disney. Disney was started by Walt Disney in Anaheim, which was very, very successful. They did it again in uh, Orlando, instant success. They went to Tokyo, Tokyo Disneyland, fantastic. So they said, hey, we can do everywhere. Anyway. We can be successful everywhere. Then they go to Euro Disney in Paris. And within the first two years, they lost $2 billion. Now, basically, as a result of culture, because the Americans, this is the way we do our thing, and we're going to do the American thing here, and the Europeans said, get lost. <laughs> All right? Because in the French are also very proud people. You know, you take everything American. For The biggest thing, they, 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 the biggest problem they had was the restaurant. They spent $6 billion to build all these wonderful hotels and restaurants. And then, of course, on American soil, they don't sell alcohol in the theme parks. You see? So they say, hey, we don't sell alcohol in the theme parks. But in France, having wine, wine. with meals is a given. It has to be there. It is their thing. That is what they do. So they come and they order the meals, and then they say, we want a bottle of wine. Soda. And they said, we don't sell wine here. And they walk away. This company lost $2 billion. Even their hiring techniques and methods were all American. I am fine. The, Chinese, uh, the, the Europeans said no. So in a sense, you've got to be very, very sensitive. You've got to understand the culture. That's why it's always good even to have a partner. Mm-hmm. Joint venture partners, so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's got its problems also. But you've got to make you know, a knowledge assessment of the place. You've got to do your groundwork. You've got to do your homework. You cannot just get up and say, oh, there are many Nigerians who eat Gary, therefore I'm going there. You need to understand basically the culture. How they got decide strength. to. That's right. The way they sell, the way they do things and so on. So knowledge is very, very important. You may hire somebody to do some study for you before you actually get it. So you've got the skills. You've got the capability. You know the culture. You know what pleases them and you go for it. Now, PK, is, is it is, um, going global? Is it something that is it only multinationals who have the privilege of doing that? Or is it possible that SMEs, I mean, the barbershop next door could think about it? It used to be the big companies only uh, going uh, multinational, uh, multinational to different countries and so on. But these days of mm-hmm. knowledge, economy, and globalizing world and so on, even medium-sized enterprise can do international business. Okay. And especially uh, with the development of regional trading blocks, things have become a lot easier. In the sense that if you take European Union, for example, mm-hmm. uh, you go back 15 years and you had a Dutch market, you had this and so on. So a small firm had a problem of dealing uh, with some customers in Germany, getting Dutch market, changing them back to cities, then dealing in France, French franc and changing. Now you've got a whole big market with only one currency. So the risk is fa- reduced. Yeah. The transaction costs are reduced yeah. substantially. So a lot of small firms can actually do uh, international business. And if you've got some product which is niche and specialized and so on, you can exploit it in many, many, many countries. Wow. Wow. So um, I am an SME. I've decided that, okay, um, I, I've been thinking about it for some time, but I haven't listened to you today. I'm thinking that, okay, okay, it is a possibility. Yeah. Is there any particular, is there any strategic mindset or position that is required for building these businesses um, across the, um, um, the various right. places? Let's, let's say you've got a product. Let's yeah. say a handicraft something yeah. that, that yeah. you are very good at. Yeah. Ghana sells yeah. well and so on. Yeah. 
And you know that British people love these things. They come here on holiday, they buy them. So. Plenty. So you think, I can start an exporting business in this. You can test it, you know, travel to Britain, um, go to some shops where they sell these handicrafts, give them some uh, 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 samples and so on, and mm -hmm. test the market and see. You need a little bit of, uh, you know, bravery, if you like, guts, business guts. But you do not win anything if you don't venture. Yeah. You know, you have to have a little bit. And sometimes I think what prevents most of our companies from small ones from going overseas is that they tend to be very mediocre. Okay. Oh, I'm, 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 I, I do $1 million worth. I'm okay. You know, I've got a, a good car. My wife has also got a, we've got a house. No, I mean, the faults of the world didn't behave like that. They were looking at the world. You know, they were going to grow and grow and grow until, until... no, they had the world. So we have to have that mindset that even though you're okay, you know, you earn enough for yourself. You are not only building for yourself, you're building for generations yet unborn. And you're building for your country too. Now, four sells all over the world and makes money for the U.S. Someday, you could be selling all over the world and make money for Ghana. Okay. You know, so God's desire to succeed, you should have a vision that is big rather than I have one million, I'm, I'm okay. You should have a vision that is big. That as long as there are opportunities and you can learn whatever it takes. You can gather the knowledge. You can uh, look for whatever it takes to go. Go for it. Um, small firms start and 10, 15 years they're big. Mm -hmm. All the big multinationals we see in the world started small some time ago. So I think it's, it's a desire really to uh, uh, do um, uh, something big for yourself. I met a lady that I, I, uh, I, 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 who attended one of my lectures in the British Council some time ago. I met her in Gimpa. She was walking towards me and smiling. And I said, this, this lady must know me. But I, I've met so many people. I can't yeah, put faces. Yeah, that's right. So I said, we know each other. I said, yes. said, it made a difference to my life. I said, I did. When, when was that? I said, about six years ago, you gave a lecture in the British Council. You said something that has changed my life. I said, what did I say? I said, she said, you said there are companies which feel too small to be big. And there are some that feel too big to be small. Those days, you know, she started a consulting firm. Sometimes she got a big contract. She was scared to take the contract. Say, it's too big for me. When I said some companies feel too, too small, small to, to be big. big, and therefore they stay where they are, she went for the big ones. She's now six times her size in wow. six years. You know, so uh, sometimes you need a little bit of guts, if you like, and uh, perhaps some uh, excitement or some encouragement by somebody. And you can do great things. I know there are American companies which um, are looking for um, um, tailors in developing countries to sew garments for them, to put in shops and so on. Yeah. You know, I want to uh, saw many in uh, San Francisco and so on. And all we need is to look That's around and say, yeah, sure. and service them, you know, and, and, and get big. Ricky, I want to find out from you, what sectors... If somebody's listening, the person is a portfolio investor or the person is thinking of going into, has various options and is thinking of going into a particular investment, from your own observation, which sectors seem to be doing well in different countries or well, in almost every country you go to? Yeah, um, I think in the knowledge economy, um, knowledge-based businesses do very well. Mm. IT, software development and so on, uh, because it's something that even one person can mm -hmm. do. You know, if you've got the knowledge, you can actually sit down in your home and develop a software and so on. So uh, the knowledge-based industries do well. And then if you've got a product that is special, so a niche product that is special, 
um, then you can also do well with it in many, many, many countries. Um, what you need to do is to find the best way of going in, maybe by exporting, maybe by you know, having a joint venture partner and sending the goods to them and so on. What you need to find out is, in any location, what are the sort of things that will sell? Mm-hmm. Some product will sell in country A, will not sell in country B. You know, so look at what is it. And that is why for anybody wishing to go international, a little bit of travel will do, a little bit of research. You know, you go around and uh, you find that, you know, this particular thing will do well here and will not do well somewhere else. And then you go for it. It's difficult to talk about it academically unless you have something in mind. Absolutely. But whatever you have, I'm sure there will be some other places apart from home that will be... Uh, will do well in business and uh, it's a matter of doing a little bit of research but knowledge businesses they do very well and then niche products handicrafts and so on they do they do well and then back office work also does well you know um, you can uh, contract mm-hmm. from the big companies to do some of the back office work for them like data processing and so on that's data entry data pro- yes uh, that, that does very very well you can do that for them and then you can also be a supplier of parts for big companies. You know, if you've got a manufacturing entity, you could go to some of the big companies and say, look, um, I can do this uh, part for you and I can do that. And usually they will test you. And if you're good, you can actually have a good business. And then once the big companies do well, you also do well. In other words, your fortunes will be tied to the big companies. So you can select. So there are many areas that will do well internationally. People haven't ventured. They haven't um, researched, they haven't explored and so on. But I have no doubt that many, many products. See, what globalization has done is open people's minds to other things from the world, okay. other parts of the world. Today, people live in the UK and they want to eat coconut. And coconut gets there because of globalization. Mm-hmm. You know, air transportation and so on made it possible for people to send coconuts there. So you just sometimes test the market with things and uh, you find that you're doing very well. Wonderful, wonderful. Do you have to travel to do international? You, you mentioned travel, but in the same breath, you also mentioned finding a joint venture partner, and you talked about um, also doing export. Yeah. Do you have to necessarily be physically present outside the no, country to are, do international business? There are business? many strategies for doing international business. The basic one is exporting. You make your products here very, very good, and of course, the product should be good, because nobody else was going to take products which are shoddy. They must be good. And good quality products are given now. Um, if you go back to the uh, post-war period, maybe the first 20 years, uh, you could make anything and people will buy it. Today, we've got so many companies producing virtually substitutes. So if your product is not good, forget it. Mm. So let's assume that the product is good. You can start by exporting. Just staying here and shipping the goods overseas to shops and so on. And that is the basic way of going into international business. All American companies started by exporting. And once the market became big, mm-hmm. then it was economical to set up productive fa- facilities in the, in the market they're in. But earlier on, it was exporting as a starting point. Okay. So you could export or you could license. If you've got some um, proprietary mm-hmm. knowledge for doing something, for some products or some uh, software or something, and um, you don't want to go there, you can actually license some company in the market you want to get in to produce it and then you get a cut like mm. royalty like you publishing yeah, a book yeah, for me yeah. right if it's a product or technical thing we use the term licensing or you can franchise that's where you're dealing in services you know so you find that more than half the mcdonald's hamburgers joints in the world 
are actually not owned by McDonald Hamburgers Limited. Yeah. yeah. You know, you go to them and say, look, I want to set up a joint, McDonald's joint here. They give you the recipe, the book, the, you know, everything about how it operates. And you set up and they get a cut from the money. So you can do it by franchising. Or you can actually get into that country and set up your own. That's we call it foreign direct investment. You yeah. get in there and you establish, you know, your own factory or your own software development company, whatever. And you can do that two ways, basically. You can either buy mm -hmm. an existing facility there, yeah. so you enter by acquisition. Or you can just go there, get the land, and build your own. You know, greenfield um, uh, uh, development, we call it. So you can do foreign direct investment. And then you can also go by what you call strategic alliance mm. or joint ventures. If you think this market is very, very difficult to get in, you know, the cultures are too different uh, from what I know and so on, then you can actually get um, a, a partner local, local and get into bed with that partner um, and then make sure that everything but is written not, there. Not, not literally. <laughs> get into bed is the term we use, but not literally. Yes, you've got it. You get into bed with that, <laughs> you get into bed with that partner. Now, uh, joint ventures can be difficult to handle because... Uh, uh, sometimes dishonesty comes in and so on. But, you know, once uh, you get into bed in an honest way, just like marriage, you know, if it's based on love and mutual respect and so on, it works. And that takes the risk of getting into an area you don't know away because you've got a partner. Who knows? We are hanging out in the studio having fun with the man who's traveled several continents. He's straddled Jamaica, USA, China. Nigeria, South Africa, UK. He's a resident in the UK and, of course, Accra, Ghana. And we're finding out about how to go global. Um, what about ethics? How important is ethics in doing international business? I think it's very, very important. Um, I mean, if you're going anywhere to do business, the number one is the rule of law. You're going to operate in somebody's country and you must have respect for the laws of the land. Secondly, apart from laws, there are certain... Uh, aspects of uh, culture which is ethical, the way to behave in public and so on you know, you want to be accepted as part of the society mm -hmm. you, when you get into some place to do business it's not just the money, mm -hmm. you want to be part of the system and that is why those companies would go elsewhere and have a very good corporate social responsibility regime, they succeed okay. because they are seen as a nice person in that community and even though it costs money you know, to actually make yourself a nice person and a company, it's a legal entity just that acts to op, uh, uh, officers. So as soon as you're seen as a nice person, that brings returns. You know, so good behavior, ethical behavior is important. You must be seen to be behaving well, now with the Lord, customs and so of the place, and um, you should be seen to be contributing to the society at large, corporate social responsibility. Well, um, what about staffing? When you're looking for personnel, do you hire from the country you're going to or do you carry your people with you? And how do you find the right mix? It's always a mixed bag of the two. Mm -hmm. Certainly, you're going to take your own people there to be at the top to make sure things are done properly in line with the corporate you know, culture and so on. But you need people on the ground. You cannot you know, take everybody. There will be local staff yeah, you know, that you, you will need on the ground. The only thing is that these people must be trained 
to be able to fit into your business culture and into your business and, and you should be able to make them as productive as possible. You know, when we talk about labor, it's not just human beings. Mm-hmm. It is human beings with some skills in them. Otherwise, you, you can go around and pick anybody walking through the street and make him a university <laughs> professor. You know, there must be some skills. So one, you must actually make sure that people you are hiring have got the skills to do the job. But that is the first and necessary condition. It is not sufficient. The sufficient condition is that these people should be motivated to deliver. Because, you see, human beings, unlike machines, have emotions. And the fact that somebody is skilled does not mean that when they go to the office, they will do the job. They can be skilled and still go and sit there and say, I don't feel like working, or I don't like the look of the boss, or I don't like the look of his face. Therefore, I'm not going to work, even though they're skilled. So, one, you make sure they're skilled, because it will be folly to actually... You know, hire somebody to to do a job they haven't got the skills to do. So one skill, two motivator. How do you make them feel that their personal fortunes are tied to the fortunes of the organization? organization. Because human beings, there's a little bit of selfishness in all of us. Everybody has something in him that says, "What's in this for me? What am I gaining from this?" And if a person feels that if this company does well, I also do well, then they will deliver. So that motivation is important. But the, the, the mix of local and uh, staff you're taking will depend on the nature of the business and so on. Um, and, and there's no fast and hard rules about that. You have to gauge what is an appropriate mix. Okay. Well, um, let's. We, we presently are in Ghana, right? Yeah. And then we have, uh, you, you've talked about the skill, the motivation that one needs if you're doing global thing. If you are doing something, what kind of assets do we do we need to have to stand as in good stead if we are going on? I mean, we are on the global frontiers. As an individual. As an individual, also as as, as I mean, as somebody who hopes to work on the global f- um, frontiers. Right. Um, if there there are some people who naturally love to travel and live elsewhere and so on, and um, with globalization, that is facilitated a lot. A lot of people feel very comfortable working elsewhere. If you wish to travel and work internationally, then the first question is, what is it that you're taking on board? You know, uh, people are looking for um, people with skills, not just any human being because you're human. You must have some skills. And the skills must be the kind of skills that those countries are looking for. Yeah. You know, so if you want to work for the UN, even the UN, there are many divisions. You need the UNTAD, RT, and so on. Which area do you want to work in? And once you've determined that, then you build expertise. Because you have to be able to sell yourself. Mm-hmm. And you say to people, this is me, this is what I can offer. And then they will look at you. So it's, it's a good thing to travel and uh, go and work and so on. It gives you experience. There's a big world you want to explore. You know, the world and so on. It, there's nothing wrong with it at all. And in any case, when you live elsewhere you still contribute to your country. Yeah. I cannot imagine how many thousands of pounds are brought in here from UK. But you have to be able to have a scale, something that is saleable. Yeah. That is the first step. And then, of course, you must be a people's person also because you are leaving your culture to go and live elsewhere. And you should be able to change very quickly to assimilate the other culture. Otherwise, you don't fit. What happens is that you go do the job, you don't talk to anybody because you don't even like their jokes. All right? When they laugh and you think, what is it that is so funny? These guys are laughing because you're not able to uh, get yourself in there. Then you come home, you go and come home, you're very miserable. So you should be able to uh, fit, you know, um, uh, if you like, reinvent yourself 
and fit in that society. If you are not that kind of person, then please stay here. Because it will be very, very miserable life when it's just work and no social life and so on because you just can't fit. Wonderful. Tim Piki, how, how important is reading? Extremely important. I mean, in the knowledge economy, everything is, uh, is virtually in your mind. And you find that the best and the most valued workers are those who are knowledgeable. Fantastic. My son is um, IT security consultant for KPMG, and uh, uh, sometimes I call his wife to say hello to, to, to the wife, and he answers, Hey, son, are you not going to work? He says, I don't need to. I can sit here and sell and £100,000 for KPMG. What he has, the asset, is his brains. So, knowledge is the most important. And if you read, you know, you actually get knowledge, and it is knowledge that builds. So which, which one book? I know, I know you are widely read, but which one comes to mind immediately? Somebody mentioned Who Moved My Cheese. Yeah. One of your favorites. Yeah. In terms of volume, I think it's the most valuable book I've read in my life. It Wonderful. takes only a, an hour to read it. And I've used that book to great advantage, teaching very senior soldiers, commanders and major generals who are leaving the British force. You see, these are huge, big guys uh, who have maybe... Uh, commanded these aircraft carriers for 25 years and they are gods and everybody says yes sir to them and they are 55, they are retiring, they are coming to the real world and that and change a different... is big for them. Mm. And I use that book to great advantage, you know, how to manage change in your life. Thank you for listening to Springboard Zone, an inspirational podcast by Arbet and Comfort Okran. Like our Facebook and Twitter pages at Albert N. E. Okran and Comfort Okran A for free resources and information about our itinerary, conferences, and media broadcast. For speaking appointments, email albert.okran at icloud.com or SMS or WhatsApp us on plus 233 You may also subscribe to amazon.com or your favorite online bookstore for copies of our inspirational books and audiovisual materials. Until we come your way again, always remember, you are blessed indeed. Oh,